Hello, I'm guest host Adrian Batra. Thank you for joining us for the latest edition of Full Comment. The U.S. midterms are upon us, and some are calling it one of the most consequential elections in a generation. With Democrats and Republicans in a tight battle for control of the House and the Senate, what implications are there for Canada as to who ultimately controls Congress? Professor Sands is a director of the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, is an internationally renowned specialist on Canada and U.S.-Canadian relations, and he joins me to unpack this weighty question of who wins the midterms. Professor Sands, thank you very much for joining me. I'm glad to be here, Adrian, and uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I I do listen to it, so uh, uh, that's the only thing you didn't mention in my bio, but it's true. Well, that is great to hear, and we look forward to having you again. As we know, the ongoing relationship between our uh, the, the Canadian government, the U.S. government, it is the the friendliest, the the largest undefended border, and often. In Canada, we understand and appreciate that the decisions that are made in the United States have a far greater impact on what happens on this side of the border than perhaps most people appreciate. So I think it's timely that we have this discussion about the midterms as it is, as I said, a very tight battle as to the control of Congress. I'm I'm wondering if we can start from the question of varying scenarios. It is expected that the Republicans will take the House. How is that going to have any implication on on Canada? What is it that that House Republicans want to push the Biden government to do that impacts Canada? Well, I think a couple of things are are important to say at the outset. First is that, that the Congress is a reflection of the polarized politics in the country. And those polarized politics get all the news headlines, but beneath that, there's a generational transition between the sort of greatest generation uh, baby boomers that have run the United States, really going back to Bill Clinton, the first baby boomer president. And they've had a huge cultural impact. They've brought a lot to the table, but we are starting to see the rise of you know, Generation X, the millennials, and, and Generation Z or Z, who are together now the majority of the electorate. And yet when you look at senior leadership, Nancy Pelosi in the House, Steny Hoyer, her uh, her deputy, who's uh, also important in the Democratic leadership, um, or in the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell, the president himself, we have a, a set of leaders in the United States that really are um, leaders of the the last century. In a lot of ways, their formative political years were during the 20th century when we had a Cold War, and and your listeners will remember all of the features of that period. But in light of the challenges we face today, the United States is, is really overdue for hearing some new political voices who maybe look at politics in a different way. And the congressional elections this year will give us a first taste of who some of the emerging leaders are among both Republicans and Democrats. And I think that's one of the reasons it's exciting, separate from the issue of who controls things. But I think, that's such, I think that's such an important point, because the biggest accusation in politics is you've been there far too long. Incumbency you know, rules the day. And it doesn't really give the opportunity for new, fresh voices, fresh faces, more diversity to enter the arena of politics. And I think with your two, with the, with the two party system, 
it's very difficult for any independent to to break through. They they often end up sitting with the Democrats, for example. But it is a desire by the American people to have very to what is it seems to me that just the very basic things, you know, a government that protects them, a, a, a security in their future, security in their border, security, energy security, energy independence, all basic straightforward things that often governments overreach and, and try to, to control other aspects of one's life. And and I note that in this particular midterm, and I say it's consequential, it's been dubbed the most one of the most consequentials, because I, a lot of Americans view that as the country, the United States, is in the, going in the wrong direction. It is um, relying far too much on foreign oil, etc. So it brings me back to this idea of what's happening in Canada. One of Joe, President Joe Biden's first acts, as you know, mm. was to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline. He made, he, look, we, we knew it was coming. He campaigned on it, but he did it. But now we have varying international forces at play with the war in Ukraine, with OPEX plus now uh, cutting production. It's looking pretty good that Keystone XL would be a great opportunity, uh, Professor Sands, mm-hmm. to, to have have the Republicans, have the House and, and the Senate push Joe Biden to revisit that decision. Absolutely. And I, I think this goes to the, the sort of broader point of trying to solve today's problems with the last century's solutions. When we we saw the emergence of Russia's invasion in Ukraine and, of course, China's all-weather or all-no-limits partnership with China, I think that for a lot of that older generation, it's Cold War II. Um, when we started to see inflation and high gas prices, there was a flashback to some of the same policy ideas we had in the 1970s during the two oil price shocks. Um, oh, let's let's release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Let's reach out to Saudi Arabia and get them to pump more without recognizing that what's happened, what's different now is that we have North American supply chains. We are in the United States, capable of producing a lot of oil and gas ourselves if we if we allow that to happen. And we have a great partner in Canada whose production, uh, while not enough to cover all of U.S. needs, certainly fills an important niche. And yet the president, uh, President Biden, has been asking Venezuela or or other countries that really don't like the United States very much, or at least their governments don't, uh, to solve the problem for us. And I think that, that really misses the technological development that allowed us to to make, uh, I think, some of the um, the cleanest oil out there in Alberta through the way in which the oil is now produced and upgraded and carbon capture and storage, as well as fracking, which has really opened up a lot of fossil fuels here. And nobody's saying that's the permanent solution for the 20th century. We, we all want to look at alternatives that are less damaging to the environment, but it's been pretty clear that we, we need something now. There's a statistic that we spend about three and a half trillion dollars over the last 10 years in order in the United States to try to get ourselves to uh, a more uh, green energy future. And we've gone from 82% reliance on fossil fuels uh, to 81%. So we dropped a percent uh, at the cost of 3.6 billion. So it's hard to argue that the, the fossil fuels we now depend on aren't part of the mix, at least in a transition period going forward. But our leadership is acting much more along the lines of, well, let's have a price on pollution. Let's see what we can't push out of the market. Can we declare no more fossil fuel vehicles in California and other places? I'm not sure that those are practical solutions given the situation that we're in now. 
Canadians and Americans are feeling the pinch as well mm-hmm. of those carbon prices. You know, in Canada, we there are carbon taxes, and the rate of inflation that Americans are facing over eight percent. Mm-hmm. We know that President Biden did dip in again into the strategic petroleum reserve which has drawn an incredible amount of criticism, not only from the other side of the political aisle, but certainly even from those within his own party, that ultimately when those reserves have to be refilled, it's going to be at a much higher price and costing Americans even even more. We have similar challenges here in Canada, of course, where there is a specific ideology uh, within certain factions of certain wings of the Democratic Party and certainly in the Liberal Party here in Canada that um, doesn't take into consideration that our oil and gas industries on both sides of the border, so heavily regulated, so heavily scrutinized, and they themselves have been far more innovative, far more willing to take all of those environmental concerns into consideration and actually act upon uh, ensuring that what is brought out of the ground is 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 renewed, and it is uh, as you mentioned that the carbon capturing. I find that uh, Professor Sands, it's far too vitriolic to recognize the obvious solution, and and I'm wondering how does that temperature, how does that conversation change I, I, again if if the House and the Senate go red. Well, well, there there are a couple of uh, things that great question because you packed a lot in there. Um, so, so first, an observation: we we are putting prices on carbon. Canada is further ahead, and and the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has talked about going from fifty dollars a ton to one hundred and seventy, which is a very big jump. There are only about eleven jurisdictions in the United States that have uh, any kind of price on carbon or carbon pricing system. So one of the things we've been worried about since the passage of the USMCA or CUSMA as it's called in Canada is that that agreement allows for border uh, carbon price adjustments. So this would be a tax applied on goods coming into Canada that didn't pay a carbon price during their production. Now, theoretically, I can see how that would work. It's an allowable tariff or an allowable sort of charge but it would add a lot to the cost of doing business. And you think about the auto industry and the number of times that parts move back and forth. We haven't worked out how this system could potentially emerge, but with the U.S. not pricing carbon universally and Canada moving in that direction, there's a huge trade fight that will come. And I can tell you car makers and others will say, well, do I get a rebate every time I cross the border? When do I pay the tax? Now, that's pushing prices up at the same time that the U.S., and I'd say this was true for Donald Trump's administration as well, as Joe Biden's, and with the strong support of Congress, we're trying to reduce our dependence on China, which has been very hostile. Now, China may not have the best of intentions towards North America, but they did provide cheap inputs that we all used in you know in our daily lives. To forego that, which is probably the right thing to do morally, economically, and strategically, is going to mean that the things we rely on are going to be more expensive. So you see that driving inflation in a way that really calls on governments, and this is where I think the congressional picture matters so much, to find ways to reduce costs for business. And so going to Congress, they're looking at how can we lower taxes. I think the Republicans would like to see the tax direction go to to a lower level. They'd also like to rein in some of U.S. government spending, which 
they argue is contributing to the inflation as well, especially spending on things that we, we may not need to have today. We could forego at least until the economy slows down. Um, think about big infrastructure projects, things like high-speed rail or uh, investments in um, in parks and other things that could be set to one side until we're, we're in a better position. The other thing, and this is maybe the, the meta argument around these congressional elections, is, is the hope that President Biden and the Democrats around him in his cabinet are at their heart closer to the center of the Democratic Party than the progressive wing. But given Democrats controlled both houses of Congress and the White House, it was hard for President Biden to resist the pressure to continue to move governance in the United States further to the left. He needed those progressive votes to make up his majorities. And his majorities in the House and the Senate were very, very thin. Uh, just one vote in the Senate and, and obviously very tight, not quite as tight in the House. If this shifts so that the House becomes Republican, even that one chamber, you get two very positive effects, I think, for U.S. governance. First, President Biden can say to the hard left of his party, I, I agree with you on some ideas, but we have to deal with the Republicans or we're not going to get anything done. So we need a more centrist policy approach. And I think given his track record, that's closer to where President Biden is in his heart politically, a bit more of a centrist. Republican control of the House gives him something to push back against his left wing uh, with. The second thing is that I think that's closer to where a lot of the voters are. Um, and having to bring things uh, closer to the center, building consensus is, is what we really need. So I don't know what that consensus will look like, but having uh, having divided government at this point when the country itself is so divided is a recipe for getting closer to a central point that may redefine how we deal with some of these big issues, particularly the dinner table issues of, of inflation, high energy prices, the things that are really hurting families now trying to cope uh, with a lingering pandemic, a global uh, mess uh, in terms of geopolitics. It's a lot on the. It's a lot on our plates, and we've been responding to it with outdated solutions and and I think too many extreme solutions rather than trying to find a way to the center. Let's stick to the points you were making with respect to the real domestic issues that are facing Americans, and by extension, Canada faces these as these as well. But specifically because you have this election in, in, on the horizon, the filibuster that remains is challenging. And it, it, pick your president, be it Democrat or Republican. They'll say the Democrats are holding it up. The Democratic president, the Republicans are holding it up. Very little is then ultimately accomplished for the American people. And that leads to sea change elections. We saw it in 2016, for example. We saw it in 2008, for example. Mm -hmm. So those are those are the ongoing factors uh, internally in, in, in the United States. I'm wondering if there is that room for compromise because the temperature is so high. And I put it to you in this context because the Democrats have focused so much on January 6th and you have these hearings going on and they are it's basically painting the picture of anything the other guy or gal is proposing is, is wrong and it's, it's, it's never going to work. How does that change on November 9th? Does that change on November 9th? Well, it might. Um, uh, let me kind of uh, take this in two ways. First, 
I think that one of the problems when one party owns, uh, controls uh, both houses of Congress and the White House is that the other party in opposition has really no incentive to, to cooperate. And we've seen this from Republicans. I'll give you a comparison. President Biden started office with House and Senate under Democratic control, but so too did President Obama, and so too did uh, Bill Clinton when they first came in. Now, for Obama and Clinton, it was a midterm election that gave Republicans a chamber uh, of the Congress, whether it was House or Senate, that's, that really triggered their most productive and popular uh, policy initiatives because of the need to of the need to collaborate, and you know certainly we we saw Bill Clinton try to uh, nationalize health care in in his early years. He got rebuked, but then he was saying you know the, the era of big government is over and we're going to do welfare reform. And uh, Bill Clinton with Newt Gingrich running the House, I mean, it was a bumpy ride, but tried to deal with a number of issues that were much more at the center of our economy. President Obama also tried a big health care initiative in his first couple of years while he was trying to recover from the 2008 financial crisis. Um, his first midterms, he got, as he called it, a shellacking. It wasn't, it wasn't good, but it led to greater cooperation on economic policy. Not perfect, but greater cooperation after. So I do, th and I think that's partly because the president himself will, will make a change. But the other side of it is the responsibility. If Republicans don't own anything, they can sit on the sidelines and blame the Democrats for everything. And anything that isn't resolved, well, the Democrats need to do more. Uh, they, they need to change their policy direction. Rather than at providing an incentive for the Republicans to own some of the responsibility for what happens in the country, which means that they come to the table and say, well, we have ideas and we're going to do something constructive. I think we've been missing that the last two years, and I hope that that uh, brings about some change here. The second thing... Um, which I'll come back to, you mentioned January 6th. I'm, I have to admit for your listeners who hopefully won't hold it against me that I've been living in Washington here in the swamp for a long time. Um, I, got, uh, I got my first job at CSIS back in 1993, the Center for Strategic International Studies. So I've been in and around the think tank community for a while. And while it didn't get the attention, I certainly remember that at the beginning of the Trump administration, the start of the Obama administration, protests and it was Occupy Washington or it was some other group. And we had people uh, vandalizing buildings. Um, they didn't storm the Capitol Hill, but they certainly did a lot of damage and tried to stop inaugurations and uh, discourage people from being in the streets to protest what they thought was an unfair election. So we've seen this before, but for some reason, January 6th has been elevated to a uniquely insurrectionist moment. And the more we find out about it, it, it does seem like maybe a riot that went too far with some irresponsible people, but hardly a unique moment in recent American history that suggests that our democracy is in trouble. Certainly, we, we need to start having conversations of less protests, but we've seen the movie before. People have expressed their frustration with elections in public for a long time now. And um, I, I'm thinking a little bit of, of um, Christian Freeland's visit to, um, to Alberta, where you know, I guess it's the cultural protest. Sometimes an ordinary citizen will disregard all decorum and get quite nasty. And we are seeing this in our politics in Canada and the United States. And um, so I, for me, I think that is the wrong route. I mean, it just doesn't get us anywhere to shout, scream, uh, do vandalism, get very personal in attacks. 
Instead, what we need to be doing is is finding the space for moderation. And I, I would say that a lot of what we've seen in terms of outbursts have been older people. And I think millennials and Generation Z looking at what we've done in the last couple of years, I think they're hungry for a different way of doing politics, a politics that yields results. Now, they may disagree on what results they want, but this way of doing politics in the United States and Canada, perhaps particularly worse in, in the United States, is dysfunctional. It's unpleasant. And I think in the long run, it chases smart, good people away from public life. They don't want to be politicians. Why would you? You get insulted. Your family gets harassed. It's a, it's a bit of a nightmare. And we need good people to get back into, the, into government again and to try to, to make the world a better place. It's not easy, but it's something I think we've discouraged our best and brightest from doing because of the way in which we've let politics become so toxic. We will be back with more full comment in a moment. I think you've made some excellent uh, observations oh, there, Professor you. Sands, to the temperature of how we live in this current political climate. I think social media has had a significant impact on that. I think it's changed so very much. Yep. But I want to, sh- yeah, I want to shift our gaze sort of to the international factors at okay. play. Sure. Not only will they impact um, the the midterms but they will also impact what happens domestically, of course, with Canada, United States. And, and I want to pick up on the comment with respect to um, China, OPEC plus uh, President Biden going to, to the Saudis, very questionable decision there, but the international forces at play. First, I want to start with the uh, Russia's illegal invasion in Ukraine. It is coming. Winter is coming. Europe is going to be in a massive and big, big trouble when it comes to their heating their homes because they rely so much on coming from Russia. Was it a miscalculation from President Biden to go to the Saudis to to sort of have what he says is those conversations and then to see OPEC plus turn around within weeks of that visit, within just weeks, say they are going to lower production. How talk to me about how that perception out there is is going to impact Biden's presidency for the next couple of years for um as, as the very practical reality for, for Americans, Canadians, Europeans needing to, to heat their home and that that too heavy reliance on foreign oil. Well, I, I think this is something that uh, even the Biden administration would admit was a was a stinging rebuke from the Saudi leaders, and um, it's it's difficult. The United States, um, under President Biden, early on wanted to call out the Saudis. Um, I think it was part of contrasting the Biden administration with the Trump administration. They wanted to um, wanted to criticize Mohammed bin Salman for his. Uh, uh, for his behavior, particularly the assassination of um, Jamal Khashoggi, um, which is tied to his government. Not things you shouldn't object to, but the older tradition of statecraft is you have your disagreements and you have your practical working agreements. And I think it was a mistake to personalize the relationship too soon. And then, uh, and then of course, having done so, it made it very difficult uh, for the U.S. to call in a favor uh, later on. There's also a sense given the invasion of Ukraine, given the 
uh, saber rattling, if, if you want to call it that, between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. Um, we're in a situation where the U.S. is very much um, tied down by major global conflicts. And it affects the Europeans, it affects the Canadians, all of our allies who look to us for setting a tone or, or trying to set some leadership in motion here. And it is a time when countries like Saudi Arabia or Iran may feel that the U.S. is overloaded. We've got a little bit more liberty uh, to maybe act out or, or do things that we want to. The U.S. can't simply can't fight us all at once. Uh, we've seen Turkey similarly sort of pushing back uh, against the West um, and engaging with the Russians despite the uh, the Western embargo that we've had. Um, uh, I think there are a lot of those uh, those elements in play where U.S. leadership is not at its strongest because it seemed to be pinned down and also because it seemed to be run for domestic purposes. And um, I think that's underlying the connection between where we started the conversation about U.S. politics and the international scene. When a country is quite divided, it takes more effort to pull together majorities and get things done. And you've seen in the United States, and I would argue in Canada as well, as the global situation has worsened, our leaders have focused on what plays well politically at home uh, as a way of building support for their governments, rather than what in a strategic sense might be the most prudent course internationally. Um, and it, it happens, obviously that's, that's politics. You have to watch your base. You have to pay attention to what, uh, what matters. We saw that this week, actually, uh, a group of some 30 Democrats in the House signed a letter calling on uh, the Biden administration to begin negotiations with Russia to end the war in Ukraine and, and pull back from it. And that letter had been out for a while, but it suddenly got attention this week because those same Democrats, looking at how the public reacted to the idea of uh, doing a peace deal with, with Russia, given the way that Russia's behaved, they decided to withdraw the letter. But, but that's domestic politics against an international uh, you know, conflict. And it only got the attention it did because President Biden has to pay attention to those voices within his own party. If we see Congress change and we see stronger Republican voices, we won't stop the conflict. But I think we'll, we'll be pushing ourselves back to a, a traditional approach to American leadership where I hope we can go back to what Michigan Senator Arthur Vandenberg used to say as his maxim that politics stops at the water's edge, that we can approach the world with a sort of united front among Americans who are fairly united in their disapproval of Russia's invasion, their contempt for Chinese authoritarianism and the bullying of Taiwan. There is a lot of unity in foreign policy if we could pull ourselves together uh, that I think has been masked by the kind of I don't know, gestures to to the left, to some elements in the, in the Democratic Party base that uh, may make sense domestically, but have not helped us internationally. And it's very much a focus in Canada, uh, particularly with Russia's aggression. Our former Prime Minister Stephen Harper once is, is known for saying to Putin's face, get out of Crimea. And, uh, you know, when when fr friendly Canadians were offering advice to to President Joe Biden on how to deal with Putin, it was it was to, to confront him. Uh, of course, Prime Minister Harper was instrumental in making sure it became a G7 and not a G8. Mm -hmm. So we've had some strong leadership in that regard. But we focus on on the actions of what they've done in Crimea, what they're currently doing in Ukraine, because we know that there are strategic resources and military stra uh, strategy uh, for taking over 
the Arctic, which is, of course, is very important to Canada. Sure. So this, I, I bring this up because the reality Canadians face is that if there is any type of aggression, impl- you know, implicit or otherwise, towards our country, we look to the South. We look to the United States to be there, our partner and our ally, to defend whatever needs to be defended. And I think it's such an important point that you bring up that there is a stretch of the U.S. military or, or, or the what they can do. You know, you know, Senator Rand Paul once infamously said, you know, the U.S. shouldn't be the world's police. And, and I think a lot of Americans feel that way and that they feel that they don't want to get drawn into a war against uh, Russia with Ukraine and some, what some have dubbed a proxy war. But I know I'm throwing a lot in the mix here, but it's all interconnected because the United States is, is perceived as weaker right now in that regard. And that if there were far more strong voices pushing back against a Vladimir Putin, for example, that, you know, you, arming Ukrainians is fantastic. Training the Ukrainians is, 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 has been going very well. But at what point does it become real when you listen to a madman like Vladimir Putin when he says, I've got nuclear weapons and I'm going to use them? Mm-hmm. If a perceived weak U.S. isn't able to stand up against that, what shot does the rest of the world have? Well, I know. And this, this is something that I think we also have to consider. We saw last week uh, a House Minority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, talking about the importance of maybe spending less on Ukraine. Maybe we need to pull back. So this is, uh, which I don't think was was a great direction. Uh, although obviously, I mean, he's reflecting the sentiment of a lot of Americans as well. In in the years of the Trump administration and then the Biden administration, we saw, I think, an important shift in American defense policy away from. Uh, what uh, Max Boot calls the savage wars of peace, the the efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere in favor of a more traditional deterrent strategy, build up the U.S. military to deter the aggression of others. But while that was uh, that shift was occurring, uh, we failed to deter a Russian invasion in Ukraine. And um, and now that there are, are people fighting, deterrence is, is moot. Uh, we still may have an ability to have a discussion of deterrence with regard to China. That's something that uh, the Chinese have, have made a lot of advances technologically in their military. I think the U.S. with its allies is more than a match for that. But but the perception that the U.S. is in this shift, it's caught at a bad time while it's domestically divided, I think does transmit a, a, a concerning message of weakness to those who want to take a poke at us, um, Canada and the uh, U.S. together. And you see that a little bit from uh, the encounter Canada had over Meng Wanzhou and the two Michaels. Um, this is this was something that I think really would have would not have happened in the old Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. The idea of taking hostages and having this go on for quite a long time and and not be resolved. And thank goodness it has been resolved. But uh, China doesn't look at um, Canada and say, "Oh, they're off limits because they're an American ally." They have no trouble poking at uh, Canada, as we saw. And I think this is something of the new geopolitics that we have to learn to cope with. And the U.S., I think, is there are a lot of smart people thinking about how do we adapt to this era. It brings me back to that um, 
at frustration. You can see voices in Congress trying to talk about what could we do differently? How can we strengthen the U.S.? Nobody wants to see the U.S. necessarily weakened. But in the absence of a strong sort of foreign policy consensus in the U.S., we're at a very difficult uh, difficult point. And I, I take your point. What does Canada do? Uh, how can Canada support uh, U.S. engagement? And there have been some areas where Canada, I think, has done a good job. For example, as we saw in the national security strategy that, uh, that was released last week, um, the U.S. gave a call out to Canada's uh, international effort on arbitrary detention. Uh, which was a direct response to the holding of the two Michaels, but one which has gotten a lot of international support and and the the U.S. acknowledged there and, and gave a shout out to Canada's leadership on that for making an important contribution to the discussion of, of how the rules should be written uh, in this new uh, sort of tense era between the U.S. and China and others. And and I think those are the kinds of initiatives that, that Canada's long been known for, trying to make a constructive difference, uh, trying to bring a moral voice to the fore. Um, and the U.S. needs that. Um, the U.S. can't assume its allies are always there for, them, uh, for us. Uh, we need to be conscious of the importance of tending those relationships. But there was a good example of, of where Canada made a difference, where um, it didn't all fall in the U.S. And we need to reciprocate by supporting Canada's initiatives like that uh, to try to make sure that this conflict with Russia and China or this great power rivalry or however you characterize it doesn't end um, in, in, in another world war. I think that that is a very important aspect of what we're seeing unfolding. And your, your former president, George W. Bush, once in, infamously called it, you know, the axis of evil. And, and and I know that there is a perception that we're ha- we're seeing this emergence of a new axis of evil. It may not be called that, but certainly there are remnants of this partnership, you know, perceived or otherwise, of China and Russia. And it brings me to to to, to one of the things that you referred to earlier, and that was our global supply chain so much rely so much reliance that we all have on China. You know, the goods are cheaper, costs us, you know, we're used to buying those things at the dollar store and, and those things are made in China. But we realized during the pandemic that if we don't have supply and goods made in our own backyard, we're, we're going to have to continue that reliance, which gives them so much more strength. With Xi Jinping's basically now in the same position as Putin is, he's going to govern for life. Uh, these are very concerning aspects to to what we in in the Western world perceive as real global threats and finding that balance of of dealing with your your, your midterms and your domestic issues versus these very real international conflicts that are are at the forefront. I'm I think that there is a very big concern from all from the citizenry on on both sides of our border. We've got leadership that's not there to that is prepared to handle it and manage that because they're far more focused on lighter issues, you know, and, and I mean, all things can be equal at the same time. You can deal with domestic, you can deal with international. I just feel that there's often a perception that the gaze is not focused enough on, on tying all that together. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of talking about it in a, in a roundabout way, but, China is is this is the strength, and that's the perception. And the U.S. and our allies are not perceived that way anymore. Well, and and I w- I would take it 
I'm going to make your problem worse of, of pulling all these things together because I want to add another element. We these big headlines have distracted us from from what has been our reality for the last couple of years, which is the pandemic. And I think Canada and the U.S. have come through the pandemic not smoothly, but 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 we've come through it. We're, we're mostly past the worst, I think. But there are a lot of countries, particularly in the developing world, uh, where the pandemic has has left a lot of damage. Uh, some countries are looking at 10, even 20 years of economic development that they've that they've kind of regressed, gone backwards, um, and their economies are a mess. You think about the way we worry about our our school kids and what was the damage of masking them and making them do online classes. Uh, what will that mean for their futures? Well, uh, what's the situation in Mexico, in, in Brazil, in, uh, in, in Nigeria? There are, there are some real setbacks, and those countries are going to be looking to recover. After World War II, we were in the fortunate position in North America that our cities hadn't been bombed and we, we had some industrial capacity and agricultural capacity to feed the world. And we were able to really, um, I think, found uh, the Western Alliance on our ability to help feed the world, defend the world and supply the world with goods. Um, and we helped the world to recover with things like the Marshall Plan and uh, with Europe and and other international development assistance in different places around the world that that offered countries a vision of the West as a place where you you got good things where where people were kind and helpful and we were trying to build a, a more just more equitable and more generous world order and help those who were further behind economically to catch up where we are now I think uh, is is a similar challenge but I don't know that we're as well positioned. Um, we, we have so many challenges at home, so many costs at home, inflation as well. What will we do when the countries who are our friends, um, who have been friendly to us in the past in the developing world, reach out and say, help, uh, we, we need to recover too. Will we be the partner that India needs? Will we be the partner that, uh, that countries in the Middle East need? Are we, are we prepared to, to help them recover with development assistance uh, or even with free trade, giving them at least the chance to sell into our markets as we recover. Um, that's the vision that we had in the past. It might be relevant now, but I think we, we need to think about more than ourselves, even though we always, feel, we always focus on ourselves and the bilateral relationship is important. But I think Canada and the United States are on the horns or I guess on the edge of a real challenge, which is how do we help the world uh, across the board to recover um, to address climate change, to address other major challenges that simply can't be solved by a nation alone. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a very difficult time, but your, uh, your, the premise of your question, pulling all of these threads together, I think uh, you're right, it's complex, but that's also quite necessary. Um, and it's important for us to have that kind of big interconnected view of things um, because otherwise we're going to miss something very, very important. And what's not on the agenda is as important, I think, in this case, as what has been very much front and center. I really appreciate you speaking so plainly about this and making some sense of it for us. It will be fascinating to see what changes, the dynamics that do come forward, if the changes that we expect to happen with the midterms unfold. Dr. Sands, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Adrian. Thank you very much. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm guest host, Adrian Batra. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. 
you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can also listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help us by giving us a rating or leaving a review. And of course, telling your friends about us.